All right, everybody, welcome to the first inaugural live version of KUDEN. Uh, really glad to be doing this. This is uh, great that we can put it out now in this format. It's uh, If you've been with us listening to this podcast for some time, you know it's been a recording between uh, Shihan Miller and myself, Eric White, his student. Uh, we've been doing you this did, over a number of years. You did. <laughs> and, uh, you threw and, out the Shihan. You know, this is... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and this, is, this is through, <laughs> through so long we've been doing this, but it's always been pre-done. So, you know, you've been streaming at your radio or CD player or your iPod, however you consume the podcast going, I want to ask this, or maybe you're just like, no, Eric, you're so wrong, or whatever it is you've been saying. But now you can actually interact with us. This is live. So if you're not here yelling and screaming your questions at us, that's your fault. It's not ours now. We are we are live in here for you to talk right now. Uh, but if you're just checking out this version of Kudan for the very first time, uh want to let you know a little bit of background. Of course, uh, again, hosted by... Uh, Shihan Jeffrey Miller and me, Eric White, his student, he has been doing this forever since the dinosaurs roamed the earth. No, uh, wow. it's been a long time that Mr. <laughs> Miller has been studying the martial art of ninjutsu, and I've been fortunate enough to become his student uh, for what is now over a decade of time, and uh, his martial arts career spans over 30 years. It's taken him around the world. He's trained with some of the world's best martial arts masters. And I won't throw any more on his ego for now, but uh, I have a You're not throwing anything on my ego. Level. You're making me plug in a stopover on my next trip to Japan so I can come <laughs> and visit and we can have a conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's have, let's wow. have a good conversation. Yeah. And, uh, so we, we, we together are going to hopefully answer some of your questions and and Mr. Miller's going to give you uh, uh, some some great insight. And this format allows you something, hopefully like what you're listening to a radio show, but uh, something that you can consume a little bit differently and, and kind of get a sense of what that student-teacher, teacher-student conversation is like and much of the training that goes on inside and outside of the dojo that isn't in a book anywhere. It's that, that oral transmission, which is where we've come up with the name Kuden. Uh, for our podcast. So without any more background, we can kind of get rolling right into this episode uh, before I end up, yeah, having a, a, a stopover from, from Mr. Miller that I don't expect. No, that's all right. You can just show me around and show me the drag strip and all that other cool stuff that you get involved in. So anyway, we like to yeah, have fun. So if you're, if you're ultra serious about your martial arts training, you know, like martial arts is my life and don't make don't make jokes or whatever. Um, just so you know, Eric and I do have a tendency to laugh at dumb things um, that people are doing or trying to pass off as training and, and all that. So, uh, you know, for the most part, we don't care how people train um, unless you've crossed that line and you're talking about real-world self-defense, uh, in which case, you know, as one of my teachers used to always say, you can do anything that you want because you're a grown-up, but those of us who have been there would highly suggest that you don't do a lot of that stupidity. Okay. So anyway, that's where that is. That was that was my seriousness for the for the call. How about that? <laughs> and I have to stop well, saying call because it's actually a live radio show now. <laughs> it is. It is. It's so cool that we're live. I love this. Live is so much fun. So you know, a couple of things we do want to discuss as we go through this episode. You know, we're going to talk about safe distance. Uh, really good for people not only that have been training for a long, long time, but folks that are new as well to hear that information or just a little refresher on on the idea of safe distance and the different aspects that go into that. Uh, also, we'll talk a little bit about the differences in the initial stages of, of training versus what's commonly done and how that relates to weapons and why things are done the way they're done uh, within our, our our art of, of ninjutsu, what uh, Mr. Miller teaches and, and many of his teachers teach, and why why did it come about that way? Why does it look different? So I, I as a student, am going to be really interested in hearing more about that. But, you know, before we dive into that. I thought you were teaching again, we're – we're, we're, oh, uh-oh, I hope not. Uh, we're just going to scratch the surface of these things, right? Because really, um, in this short little one hour of time that we've got in, squeezed in between, you know, Mr. Miller's busy schedule of teaching and conferences he does, and of course me with radio, uh, we can only kind of scratch the surface of these things. But uh, obviously by the end of it, you're probably going to be screaming for more info, and uh, you can get much of that through 
Mr. Miller's great website, the ebooks he has. There's so many different ways you can get to this. So we're just here to kind of wet your whistle with this. But um, before we get into those couple of things, sir, I, I do want to kind of bring up something current event news of, of the time this podcast came out. Um, you know, I think we all kind of had our, our own interesting insights into something I saw that Fox News had released a video that they had gotten their hands on. It was a security cam video from a Jimmy John's. Are you familiar with this video, sir? Do you recall the one I'm talking about where an armed gunman comes to rob the store? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we all laughed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, great video, and if you haven't seen it, search it out. Uh, again, I saw it through Fox News, easy to find, but just Google, um, you know, armed robber, Jimmy Jones, you'll get it. And a lot of what's yeah, going well, on if you're right on now, If you're on Facebook as well, I think Eric has it on his page. I have it on mine. One of us could yeah. probably grab it and save it to the Kuden page, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll get it saved to the Kuden page. I don't know if we can share page. it over there or something like that, but, yeah. Uh, great learning. But it's, we uh, it's really we're learning all the time. Oh, yes. I, lo- I love consuming those things because it just, it's just it's a great tool to see something happen in a real-world situation. There's no setup involved. This is a real thing. And so this gentleman comes in, and he acts like he's going to order a sandwich at Jimmy John's, and the guy behind the counter is waiting to take his order, and the guy decides to pull out his handgun and shove it in this guy's fumbles face and demand money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so as you watch this thing, he fumbles to get it out. He he racks the slide back and puts this thing in the guy's face. And the guy behind the counter, to his credit, stayed very calm and cool and, and gave the guy his money. And nothing really came, no harm came to this gentleman behind the counter. But A little cool I noticed by my standards. That was a little cool. That was, <laughs> I, so I don't know if he was in on it or if he was on something, but he was extremely cool. So Yeah, like, he just seemed yeah, to have this really like, unimpressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Just like, uh, really going to do this to me? Okay. And just not phased in the least. But interestingly enough, the first thing I noticed, and, and it's, it's a testament to the years of training with, with Mr. Miller and, and, you know, the various uh, handgun seminars, seminars that, that, that I've gotten a chance to take in that, that you've hosted. Uh, immediately I see the guy's gun jam. He, he goes to rack back around. It goes to, to load that round, and it jams. The slide cannot lock forward. But clearly the gunman either doesn't notice or he's a very good actor, and I, I really don't believe the guy behind the counter noticed. But it just really screamed at me those things of awareness. It's the first lesson you get when you walk into the dojo, no belts wrapped around your waist at all. First thing we always start with is, is talking about awareness. So that really jumped out as a, as a great true-life lesson on that video that – uh, you know, immediately, if, if you just you're kind of aware of these things, and uh, well, and this actually screams of more than just step by step techniques, right? Because a lot of people they they want to know about how to disarm the guy and things like that, right? Where you know, a, a, a lot of folks might say, well, you know, the camera was at a side angle, so you could see the gun jam, but the guy looking at it, he couldn't see that. Well, I agree because the the round didn't go into what we call a stovepipe jam position where it's literally sticking up out of the gun, right? It, it got wedged in an angle. So the gun was probably either uh, old or dirty or uh, whatever, where it just it wasn't oiled. It wasn't allowed, you know, allowing this stuff to work right. So, or who knows, the guy could have had the wrong ammunition in there. It doesn't really matter. So from the front, you couldn't see what we see on the side. You can't see a jammed round, but this speaks of a lack of familiarization with gun work, and I have a lot of folks in in the martial arts that are friends of mine, uh, many in this art, and, you know, they would all like guns to just go away. Oh, and while that's a fine utopian kind of dream, the reality is that even if they became illegal, um, bad guys are going to have them, right? So if you don't believe me, just look at what the bad guys are carrying in all the countries where guns are illegal, right? So um, anyway, but from the front of the weapon, right? What did, what is that weapon supposed to look like, right? What is it what does it look like with the barrel pointing at you where everything's in the right position, you know? And if you're not sure, a little bit of nervous rocking back and forth while you're talking to this guy or trying to calm him down or whatever, right? Um the the clerk's hands never came up into into surrender position, which mm-hmm. we always talk about, right? You got to give this guy 
what he expects to see because if you look like Chuck Norris is about to kick him in the head, it's just too easy for him to pull the trigger and blow your face, blow your face off, right? So, um, but there's a way to check things, right? And unfortunately, a lot of this stuff just isn't covered in training because, again, the vast majority of students spend their time and the vast majority of teachers spend their time on kata, on techniques, on, you know, the official moves. Uh, he does this, you do X, Y, Z, he's on the ground regretting that he ever met you kind of thing. When there's so much more that comes before your initial movement or, you know, the, uh, so yeah, I, 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 I'm a big fan of that stuff, but yeah, we share those, those videos back and forth and, and we look at things. It was just another one that somebody sent me the other day. I think it was just a still picture, but it was either a, a, a I think it was a security guard. Uh, she had her weapon on her waist, right? But, uh, it must be one of these holsters that are riveted to the, um, mm. to the belt. Uh, or it was a clip mm-hmm. that has a rivet kind of thing. So you can, you can, uh, or not a rivet, but a gear mechanism that you can tilt the weapon to the angle that is most comfortable for your drawing technique, right? Well, um, it was loose. And the magazine, mm. the handle of the weapon, was pointing at the floor, and the muzzle was pointing up. So she was standing there having coffee with somebody else, right? And there's this weapon literally on her hip, upside down. So, wow. Yeah, I agree. Wow, right? Um, So, I mean, bad guys, the ones that know what they're doing, look for things like that, right? They they look, when they're looking at... um, uh, police officers, or they're looking at even martial artists, right? When at, at demonstrations and things, right? They're looking at not just the person's build and physical fitness level, because you know we all know that I'm built more like a, a Hote Buddha than um, you know the guy with the six pack abs and all that, right? But they're looking at how you're dressed, right? Is your uniform crisp and neat, and which screams of discipline and attention to detail? even if only subconsciously, or, you know, are you slovenly? Did you look like you just pulled your clothing out of a duffel bag and threw it on? Does it fit well, or is it oversized, or, you know, are the buttons straining or whatever? This, to, to guys that know what they're looking at strategically and tactically, who might consider attacking you, this, man, this all screams, um, they don't have to worry about you, right? And this is even before we talk about, uh, police officers. I remember I, was, I had a traffic accident. Uh, you probably remember this. I had a traffic accident a bunch of years ago uh, where it was wintertime, and in Pennsylvania, we have, we have lots of mountains and snow and ice, and uh, the state had removed the guardrail the previous spring and never got it replaced by the winter, and here I am coming along this thing. The roads are all clear, but I come around this turn where there was a lot of trees that, you know, that grew over the the road and they created a lot of shade so the sun didn't get to this huge patch of ice hmm. and i certainly wasn't speeding but i slid right off the roadway right so anyway long story short the you know the, the cop shows up and everything and uh he's getting some information about me and i tell him you know i used to do that and, and uh so somehow it gets around to uh the whole uh i was going to uh toronto to teach a seminar we were covering uh, gun defense and a bunch of those other things, and and he said he it's just somehow in the conversation he said um, <laughs> don't talk about gun stuff. I could hit the broad side of a barn if I needed to. Right, and here he is talking to somebody he has he just met, right? Was in an accident and all that. Yeah, he doesn't know this person. He doesn't know me or what I might be willing to do. We're in the middle of nowhere, literally, where there's no cell reception, the radio reception uh, for the Motorola radios that the police use and all that was spotty in this area. And I mean, more often than not, they had no communication, right? And they could go 30 minutes to an hour on patrol without being able to contact their central dispatch, right? So here's out in the middle of nowhere admitting that not only could he not hit the side of, broad side of a barn, but when it came to uh, defending himself against somebody who might be trying to go for the gun, uh, he was even worse at that. Right, so um, how about how about if we be like a cat, right, and just don't admit that you don't know anything, right? Um, right. At least let him. Yeah, and this is a great, 
this this is kind of uh in a sense, you know, talking about some of these um you know, like this video with uh, the the attacker with the gun. This is a great way to right. segue into kind of talking about safe distance. Uh because one of the mm. things that really jumps out, again, going back to the handgun seminars you you posted, and one of the most eye opening things early in my training when I took this class for the first time was the exercise you do where You've got a, a, a partner who is playing the role of the attacker with a knife who's 20, 25 feet away. And, right. you know, you say, okay, with your weapon holstered, uh, as soon as they come charging at you, feel free to draw and fire. And that right. in that, what seems like plenty of distance, plenty of time, at best ended up in you know, mutual death, you getting stabbed and maybe you hit the guy. And that was just a huge eye-opener thinking, oh, I've got a weapon, he's got a knife, and he's way far away. So what is this idea of safe distance, and how does it change depending on every situation? Right. And if anybody has the, the gun training videos and stuff like that, you'll see this drill that Eric's talking about. Um, now, we are dry firing, but the other thing, too, that uh, Eric's talking about here is it's not just a distance thing, because the Japanese word for, for that we use, typically use for distance is my. We would spell it M-A hyphen A-I, my, which isn't just distance. It actually more better translates to mean interval, right? So there's a distance um, uh, aspect to it, but there's also a timing aspect to it. And, you know, basic physics, right, basic mathematics growing up, we learned that distance equals time. The greater the distance between point A and point B, the longer the time it takes to traverse that, or you have to pick up the speed. Right, but either way, time equals distance. Right. So what we did was we set things up where here, here's a time thing, and this is important. This is going to come back to bite you in a minute, right? Because if your training's not set up right, you can learn all the techniques in the world and get your ass handed to you because you didn't learn this art. You didn't learn your training in the context of what's really going to be going on inside that bubble, right? Um, you just learned it like it was in a vacuum, okay? So one of the things that gives the defender, not the attacker in this drill, the, the, the attacker has to travel 21 feet, 7 yards, which is the average combat distance uh, for handgun uh, firefights and things like that, right? So they're going to start 21 feet away, and they're going to rush the, the defender. So the first thing that gives the defender an advantage, and remember, 10 out of 10 times, our defenders lose. Okay, I can, I can back this up in a court of law, right? Um, demonstrated over and over and over again that the stuff you see in the movies, right, is wrong. Okay, it's just backwards, right? So anyway, the one thing that gives a defender an advantage is, one, they know that just because I'm giving a silent signal or not, doesn't matter, they know that the attacker, this person that's standing across from them, is going to rush them. Standing around normally, even if you're doing, even if you're, you know, you've got concealed carry, right, or you're a police officer, security, whatever, right, there's people milling around in your world. You don't know that somebody's going to break into a rush at you, and by the time you realize that they're actually coming at you and on you, they could be halfway to almost, you know, almost uh, the whole way there, right, because they're not just standing there staring at you. You already know based on the drill that as soon as they get the signal to go, they're going to run, right? So you're set to go, right? You're already on ready, set. You're already on that, right? So that's a benefit for the defender. The other benefit for the defender is that their holster is not locked down. So there is no fighting with the holster to get the weapon out, okay? That's second benefit for the defender. Third benefit for the defender is that they don't have to take their weapon off safe under pressure, okay, because all we have them do is draw it, point, and say bang, and when they say bang, the person playing the role of the attacker remembers where that spot was, just in case they can't slow down, so they remember where that occurred. This is what you remember, yes, Eric? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so there's at least three or four advantages that we give to the defender to stack the odds in the defender's favor that will not be in place, and you'll have to work around or through in a real situation. And the closest, the, 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 yeah, the closest we've ever had somebody say bang to stop their attacker 
was uh, three feet away, maybe four feet, something like that, right? So they've literally covered, what, 75% of the distance before the weapon is out to say bang in a sterile environment with somebody who, yes, they're running to get you, but they're not, they, they're not under that adrenal response where they know that if they screw up, they're dead, right, which is going to make somebody go faster. They're not coming in from a blindside angle, right? You're all set to go, so you're like the gunslinger in the street, you know, in a cowboy movie, waiting for him to twitch his finger the wrong way, right? So, and yet most people get run over. And the, the farthest away from the defender we've ever been able to stop a, uh, an attacker is like three to four feet, and they started 21 wow. feet away, right? So what does this have to do with things, right? Well, you know, there's, there's lots of things in the gun realm, but uh, one of the things that I teach on quite a lot in uh, basic classes, intermediate classes, and I certainly remind the, the black belts all the time, we start off with asking the question, what is the speed of a normal punch? And I don't mean in miles an hour. I mean how long does it take for the average punch to travel from its start point, cocked and loaded and ready to go, to actually hitting a target? Okay? So standing nose to nose, ready to go, right? What's the average time? Do you know, Eric? You've been around for, like, training in the dojo for a while, but maybe you saw this in one of my online things. I, I honestly don't recall the timing of it, but if I'm just going to pull a number out of thin air, I'm going to go with like we're talking like totally unloaded to somebody's deciding they're going to punch, right? So as soon uh, as he's decided, well, he's already been past a second. A second? Okay, so is this? Is this? Yeah, I'm going to say it's okay. Second. Okay, so I'm talking. He's already made a decision, but the muscles have fired to start moving the fist, and it then it lands on the target. Okay. The average speed oh. of the average punch is two hundredths of a second. Okay. Okay. That's less than a quarter of a second for the average punch to land. Now, this does not account for the guy who has to haul back and then punch you. I'm right. talking about the guy that doesn't do any of that stuff. He just bang. So a jab or a yes. cross or something like that. Which yeah. Is, it's two hundredths of a second. Okay. Okay, great. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that I have to be able to move in that amount of time. Well, there's a problem with the moving, no matter how fast you are, and that problem has to do with brain processing of the information being collected and the brain sending the signal to the muscles to move, not even taking into account the muscles moving the limbs to get you out of the way. Okay, so that's why in typical fights, right, the, the normal thing that people tend to accept is I'm going to have to take one or more to get one or more because I have to stay within range to be able to get him, right? But the problem is that if he's in range for me, and this is the truth for all guns, I, I first learned this in the military, right? One of the rules of combat is if the enemy is in range, so are you, okay? So <laughs> here's his problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not talking about fighting. We're talking about survival. We're talking about not wanting to be there and making this guy work harder to get at us. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the first thing we're talking about here with distance is, um, so it's going to take a quarter of a second. Okay, so great, right? But here's the other thing, right? And I was just doing a, I was just doing a presentation at a local, well, not a local, it was a regional medical center, uh, fairly close. It was one of the closest presentations I've done here recently. But it was on workplace violence and all that, and I was teaching them uh, safe places to communicate with somebody who is aggravated, agitated, and may become physical, right? So what I taught them was that they needed to stand about a step and a half to two steps away from the person and not their steps, his steps. So if he's taller than you, then it needs to be more than that, right? So it's a step and a half to two steps for the bad guy so that you have time to respond, and here's why. Uh, and actually, uh, while I was teaching this, uh, a surgeon that was actually there and he presented just before I did, he stayed for my presentation, and he stopped me, and he was, of course, he's talking to medical professionals who you would think would know this stuff, but he wanted to remind them that they needed to pay attention to what I was teaching because 
the normal response time from seeing something, not even seeing, the time that something moves, right, until it's the time that you recognize the motion. Ready for this? The real-time movement, when he actually goes into motion, and the time that you're, the recognition, the, the perception center of your brain recognizes that motion is two hundredths of a second. So we are all actually, when we think we're living in real time, we're actually processing things that we saw, felt, heard, whatever, a quarter of a second ago. So we're all living in the past. We're, we're operating based on information. Now, I know it's only less than a quarter of a second, but the point is that we're all processing the past as though we're the present. And that's why things look like they came out of nowhere. Okay? So if I'm standing too close to someone, right, that time is neutralized. So if it takes less than a quarter of a second, just under a quarter of a second, for a punch to go from initiation to landing, and it takes me that same amount of time to perceive the initial movement, it's why people are surprised because they saw the fist move, but then they experienced the slam. Right, and they missed all that in the middle. It's because by the time they perceive the initial movement, they're getting hit. Okay, so one of the drills that we do in the dojo is we start the students farther apart, five, six, seven steps away. And I, you've you've done this. Uh, and then the attacker, what he does, it's kind of like it, you know, in the mall, right, where you start you're you're walking towards somebody, and then you become aware that you're walking at somebody. So you just naturally take a little step left or right, and normally we just navigate around people with our uh, peripheral vision and subconscious awareness. We just maneuver, and you don't give it that much of a thought, right? It's just navigating. But every once in a while, you'll take a little sidestep, and they will have taken a little sidestep in the same direction. And then you go to do the opposite thing, and they've done the opposite thing, and then you laugh at each other, and uh, you know, and you, you make this correction, and you eventually get past each other. But there's a moment of kind of a funny awkwardness that's going on, right? But what would happen if yeah. I were walking towards somebody, I took that little adjustment step, they took that adjustment step, I went to go in the opposite direction, they went in the opposite direction, I went again, and then I realized that they're staring me down, and this isn't one of those moments. This is an, oh, shit. This guy's honed in, and he's moving in on me, right? This is real. This is, this is how a lot of attacks occur, right? This guy doesn't get beamed down in front of you at initial starting distance, like the kata teacher or whatever, right? They don't get beamed down from the Enterprise right in front of you. That was my geek showing, right? And then they're going to launch a punch from there, right? There's some closing in. There's some maneuvering. You know, if you really think about this, this guy may have started about started thinking about jacking you up or somebody up when he crawled out of bed that morning, right? And God help you if he thought about jacking you up because being targeted is the most difficult thing to defend against because you're targeted. It's 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 about you. It's not about you being in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're looking for somebody, right? You are that yeah. body, right? So anyway, so here's this thing where they're honing in, right? So now there's all this physiological stuff going on, right, where your body starts to kind of recoil and, and turn and you're trying to sort out what's going on, right? And, and this is just that they're walking in at you, right, calm and cool and collected. They start moving in, right? They may shift left or right to try to figure out a good angle to get at you based on what your arms and limbs start doing, right? So what's their best avenue? Because they're not moving in to let you win, right, which is how a lot of martial artists tend to think because, right, that's how the techniques work out, right? He attacks, I win, right? But he doesn't plan for you to win. He's not like the uke who's letting you do your turn until it's his turn, right? This guy, his turn is kick your ass or kill you or whatever and call it a day, right? Or move on to the next one. So this is just this guy moving in this way. This doesn't account for him. As soon as he realizes that you realize, then he bull rushes you or something like that, right, or pulls a weapon. This is just phase one of this kind of training, right, which leads up to the attack. So one of the things that we do uh, and this, where this drill can go is in 
learning how to defend against somebody who's throwing a jab, all right? The first lesson you learn is don't be close enough that he can reach you with a jab, right? But how does that translate into a dynamic setup rather than a mechanical setup? Because the first thing you should learn is, you know, he gets his distance, he kind of gets set, right? And if you understand how that works, he can bend his front leg or bend, bend his front knee as far forward as he wants and reach out all he wants, and it's at best he will bump your lips, right, or your nose or whatever, right? But you're not going to get hit where the bone structure gets rattled around, okay? So that's lesson one where we're not going to flinch when somebody throws it. Well, we might flinch, but we're not going to be overly concerned when somebody throws a jab because he can't reach me with a jab, okay? So our defending against the jab starts with just understanding distance to where he can't reach me with it, okay? But later on, we, we have to factor in the fact that even though you know that, he might get so close that you actually pull your head back, which in that case, it's the same as getting hit. You're not hurt, but you gave him what he wanted, right? So let's just we'll steer around that for the moment. So now, instead of a mechanical setup, we have a dynamic setup where this guy's working his way in, shifting left and right, finding a good angle, starting to blade his body and get in starts to bring his hands up in place so that when he is one step away or less than one step away, he can launch that punch and nail you with no problem, right? And even if you flinched one side or the other side, like a boxer, duck, or, you know, that kind of thing, he, he's right there with the, with the cross to hit you with that, right? So especially if he has experience, he knows how to, how to work this stuff out. So what we want to do is as he's moving in, Right, we're literally walking toward each other, and then you realize, oh crap, this is not one of those funny haha moments. This is an oh shit moment, and you suddenly start to backpedal, right? So you start to walk backwards, maybe even shift side to side to change alignment. Of course, he follows you, and then at a certain distance, right? He's not going to do it from way across the room where he suddenly takes up ready position and then shuffles forward to get you like the Frankenstein monster. He's not going to do that, nor is he going to walk all the way up to you and then suddenly spring into ready position before he throws the punch. He's not going to do that. It's a phasing kind of thing, right? So as he's walking towards you, he'll start to blade his body because he has to He has to be concerned about maybe, you know, getting hit as well, so he wants to make sure he's covered. If he doesn't do that, then this guy's cold and sociopathic, and he's way okay with getting hit. The assassin would do this, right? He'll just walk past you, and when he's within range, he'll stick something in you or shoot you or whatever and keep right on walking like nothing ever happened, okay? But this guy, we're talking about normal, average. He gets into a certain range, which is still a couple of steps away. We're talking still probably three, four steps away when he starts to, you know, he's still walking, but he starts to blade his body where his offside comes forward, his power side goes back a little bit more, right? And then his arms start coming up, right? And then by the time they're in position to launch that strike, he is a step, he's in our normal striking distance, right? So when he starts, at a certain point, you need to start backing up so that he has, he has to cover more distance to get at you. And then when he starts blading his body, you start blading your body, right? And as he starts lifting up his arms, you start lifting up your arms so that your cover is always in alignment with his weapons, right? So they don't suddenly spring up because he could disengage at that point. You know, if you realize you're, you're in trouble, if you just suddenly bring your hands up, scream at the guy, his video camera's all over the place, right? If he's not in position yet, right, he can blow that off and go, this guy's nuts. Right? So then you can see the problem with this is you have to start all over again. There'll be another day. And if you show your skills, then he's going to work around that as a new piece of information. Right? So sometimes you've got to let it ride itself out so that you can just finish it. But anyway, as he's moving in, right, we want these things to be in the right place. Right? So as he's bringing his up, yours are up, right? So that at the point, where he is ready to launch his attack, you are in proper kumai. So you are in that snapshot position that you learned as a beginner, right? But you have to do it from a dynamic setup. 
So what we're doing is we're controlling this distance. And, again, we're in a position where he's too far away to jab. He's too far away to throw a cross, uh, a cross punch, a hook punch, and he's too far away to just do a lead leg front snap kick or something like that via some kind of martial arts experience. So what you're learning to do is put all this stuff together against a real-world dynamic setup so that he is forced to take a step to punch you or throw his training all away, right, and you're in kumai. So you're learning how to apply all this ancient stuff that really, really works, but forcing somebody who doesn't fight like a 13th to 15th century fighter who throws one of these classical ski, you're forcing him to do something that's outside of his own paradigm. But you're doing it by controlling the distance first. And that's your first, well, your first phase of self-defense is an understanding that this exists and you have to deal with this problem, that he's not going to appear out of nowhere standing in front of you, right, or whatever, right, that it's going to start as a pushing, shoving thing. It's going to start as him intentionally or not bumping your shoulder and then taking that as an offense, and now you're at a certain distance. It's going to, right, there are all these possible setups, and we start there. And then, you know, situational awareness and escaping to safety and all these kind of things that we teach, right? But in this case, uh, we're, we're setting this thing up so that we can practice. I'm not sure what that buzzing is online, but uh, so that we can practice working with this um, uh, diminishing space, right, and how we can control that so that he just can't get inside and we don't throw years of training away and end up fighting just like everybody else. Is that where you were going with this, hopefully? <laughs> um, but there's this little drill, right? There's just this little drill right? where we're, we're controlling that distance, right? And that starts with day one. Right, learning that that's that that's where you want to be functioning and why, right? Not because it's our style. You and I talk about this a lot. Way too yeah. many people have integrated right. this art into a style, and then now the argument is about this style over that style or whatever. It's not about style. It's about application of science, and there's a reason for that, right? And of course, that reasoning goes into the use of weapons and stuff that we'll talk about later, but at the moment, there's this bubble that we need to control, right? So if he can't get at me easily, then he can't do what he does normally and easily, right? So. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and, and then the basis of, you know, some folks who may be training kind of on their own or with a small group remotely that don't maybe make it into uh, the dojo or Mr. Miller is that, uh, you know, often that all just from the coaching side of this is, is big on. We, we start with having those students, you know, stand facing each other, get that arm's length from each other where you're just out of range with your arms extended and then everybody kind of taking their steps back into that ready position just as that early drill to start setting that muscle memory, as it were, on what that yeah. facing is. Yeah, and um, well, I try to so have my here. my long distance coaching students, you know, try to set up a group. Um, you know, you can still visualize somebody coming in, and you know, do this thing or do it this way, right? Record your set up a camera and video record yourself doing the attacker's part where you're moving in and you know you're getting set up to to, to punch and all that, right? And then plug that into a computer or big screen TV or whatever and then stand a certain distance away and start walking toward the TV. And as your recorded self is doing the attacker's moves, then you can mirror that to bring yourself up into position so that when you're literally a step and a little bit away from them, you, what you're practicing is the mirroring, right? So we have all these little drills and things that we yeah. can do, uh, even for the long-distance guys. Um, you know, that's, that's important as well. And then, you know, a lot of the guys, they're not making it into the dojo. And, you know, granted, we have the same kind of videos that a lot of folks have where here are these lessons, but there are all these other ancillary videos that cover these drills and these different uh, setups and control of distance and, and all these things that, you know, allow somebody to recognize that unless he just stepped out of a doorway and it was a blindsided, you know, attack that literally was a surprise attack, there is there's a, a, a setup to it. There's a wind-up to it. There's all this stuff that you can wire into your awareness training and be able to, to then start maneuvering with that, right? 
what do you do if you're backpedaling and a wall's coming up behind you or a car or whatever, right? How do you cut laterally and actually increase distance, right? Uh, those kind of things, right? So we teach the footwork for maneuvering that way and, you know, those kind of things. So um, I'm, I'm just a big fan of recognizing and tearing apart Takamatsu Sensei's lessons where, uh, you know, if you understand the Kionapo, you don't need anything else. But there is so much to the Kionapo, right, um, that even has to do with being able to get into a position uh, based on the way a fight's going to kind of grow, right, how it's going to uh, – uh, manifest, right, as opposed to the way it's typically done in the dojo, where you choose a partner, you smile, and he pulls back, and you get into Kamai, and he does his thing, and you do your thing, and all that. Now, what about all the stuff that leads up to that? What about all the chaos that has to be managed, and, and you know, kind of, uh, what about all the stuff that you have to do to take the fact that he has 15 options when he first starts out? And reduce that to where by the time he throws the attack he's going to throw, he has three or three options or less, right? And so now you're not looking for anything. You're watching for those things. And if he doesn't throw one of those one to three things that are possible for him to do well and get at you, then you know that his skill just sucks, right? You don't have to fight as hard. You don't, there's so much that you can gather as a ninja about somebody by just learning how to control the bubble to control the, the, the environment and, and yourself. And, and the, it's the work outside of step-by-step technique where you do X, Y, Z, throw him, put a lock on him, all the stuff that, you know, most people think is cool. But what happens to all the stuff that leads up to that that could have diminished his abilities, advantages, and all that, or just flat out made it too difficult for him to get at you, so he just goes away and picks an easier target? What happened to all that stuff? Because that's part of self-defense as well. But, see, that's not the cool stuff, right? right. So, <laughs> again, we, we go back cool to the – Yeah, you and I laugh at this stuff, right? But it goes back to why is somebody training? Are they training to be a survivor in a dangerous situation, or are they training to feel confident and powerful, which is not to say it's not the same thing, but very often they're not the same thing. Or are they training to be impressive to other people? So, you know, it's not about surviving. It's about ego, you know, those kind of things, right? Um, because if we're talking about surviving, there's way more that you have to do, and it's boring training. Oh, my God, it's boring, right? Because cool stuff isn't mm-hmm. happening unless you're like me and you think that positioning stuff is the cool stuff. It's the magic where you're you're – literally taking things away from it, right? And it lives to the very first lesson I learned in this art from my teachers, way, way back. And that first lesson is a ninja gains control or takes control from the attacker long before the attacker realizes that he lost it. Because if he knows that you took it from him, if he knows that you pulled out some trick and you beat him, yeah, there's vengeance, there's revenge, there's all those things mm-hmm. where he's going to want to try again, get at you or whatever. But if you can make him think that it was his mistake that did it, or you leave him with this eerie sense that, oh, man, if he did that and I couldn't get at him, what the hell is he really capable of where they don't want to get near you? You know what I mean? Um, that's a whole different realm. That's a whole different level of control. But if we think of things in a normal context of martial arts, it's all about being the biggest, baddest, toughest guy on the block, bragging about your X degree of black belt, you know, whatever, all the techniques you know. That's so not needed to. So, anyway, yeah. it is what it is, right? Well, and, and, uh, so. and another effort for a fun segue to our next segment, uh, you know, distance, of course, can change, too, given that uh, your attacker may have something in their hand, uh, from a knife to a stick to some other form of weapon, and that certainly changes that kind of bubble of space. Uh, Absolutely. would love to hear you kind of talk more on this this thing we, we kind of got in in the preliminary call you and I have about the differences in the initial stages of training and, and versus, you know, how things commonly are done, how weapons played a role in those things. So I would oh, love absolutely. to hear you expand on that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the one of the biggest aha moments I ever got in my training, one the first time I it got to me, it was very very confusing, because what I was taught was that all the unarmed stuff 
uh, was based on sword and spear. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. How can unarmed stuff be based on weapons when you do the unarmed first? And then you – so, you know, as a dutiful student, I smiled and nodded and figured I'd get that part later because at the moment I need to figure out not get punched. So – uh, but then as, you know, I got into black belt levels and I started to, uh, integrate more of the historical specifics into real world stuff and, and understanding the differences between how Koto Yu would do it as opposed to Gyoko Yu and how that's different than the way the Gagi Ocean and how these different arts blended over time so that what we see in the Bujinkan is like the best of the best of because these, these schools purified themselves, so to speak, right? They would check themselves and, uh, like the Tagagi Ocean guy getting together with the Kukishinden guy, and then they walk away with Kukishin, not Kukishinden. Kukishinden was Takamatsu's specific branch of the Kukishin school. So anyway, um, uh, they got together, and then when they when they finished their trading of techniques and, and sparring and all that stuff, the Kukishinden guy or Kukishin guy says, "Man, you're." Uh, Taijutsu is way better than ours, so from now on, we're going to do it the Tagagi Yoshin way. So to continue mm. to practice Kukishin the same way, just because there are nine schools, would be stupid because the Kukishin Grandmaster already realized, crap, that Taijutsu stronger, we'd be stupid to not do things that way. And the Tagagi Yoshin guy walked away going, mm, yeah, the Kukishin bow, way stronger than ours. So while there are these little nuances and little things that we can put in that are uniquely Tagagi Ocean or Kukishin or whatever, there is a specific lineage that forms a solid foundation for that whole uh, training because it was it had been purified over time. But that's not what you were talking about. What you're talking about is is the fact that uh, traditionally people didn't start with unarmed. Traditionally they started with long pole arms. So the twenty something warriors out on the battlefield are masters of the spear and the naginata. And when I say master, I mean from 9 to uh, nine to 15 feet away, they can do a one-touch, one-kill on people that far away. Okay? So wow. here's this thing. Yeah, of course, right? And then as they get older, and maybe they're not moving so well because they have injuries or they have scars or they have, in, you know, whatever, right? Uh, or they had this what-if stuff where people were getting inside, right? Then they moved to the katana, okay? Hmm. And then if they stuck around long enough, and when I say stuck around, I mean survived, right? They're getting older. They're getting slower. They've got built-up injuries, that kind of stuff, right? So now the old guys, right, they're using much shorter weapons, right, because maybe not just because of, uh, age and battlefield wounds and all that kind of stuff, but maybe rank as well, right? So now they're being invited to the Shogun's castle or or this other lord's place or whatever, right? So they have to check the katana at the door, and, you know, they're only allowed to have a wakizashi, right? So maturity brings status as well, right? But either way, they've got, they're getting shorter and shorter weapons until eventually the old guy's just protecting the homestead, right? So... What happens if he loses the sword or he can't get to it in time, and now it's just physical? So, ironically, what we see today where people start with the unarmed and move through uh, smaller weapons to mid-range weapons to longer-range weapons, right, as the norm, historically, it was just the opposite, where we started with the long-range weapons, moved to mid-range weapons, and all all the way down to unarmed, which now explains why... All of our unarmed stuff looks like, and if you understand what you're looking at, looks like you're holding a weapon, but the weapon isn't there. Because if you're in Bobi no Kamai, right, or Shoshi no Kamai, whatever you want to call it, right, and your rear hand is where it's supposed to be at your hip pocket with your thumb parallel to the floor, right, the the tube through which the fingers form a, you know, a tunnel, right, that's at a very specific angle. And as that moves forward into this Shoshin or Bobi or even Sagon position, if you take your palm in your lead hand position and turn it palm up or shorten it, turn it palm down, as in Ichimonji from Gyokoryu, 
and then you put a staff in there, whether it's a spear or naginata or just a rokshak bow, you put that in there, it sits perfectly at the right angle. But if the rear hand <laughs> with your boshiken is, like for some people, the thumb is pointing down, right, not only can you not hold the weapon in correct kumai position, but it's also very front-end heavy because the leverage is working against your wrist and your elbow and shoulder joint and the muscles that control them aren't in play, right? So everything becomes a shadow or a, uh, a representation of this weapon stuff, right? And then if you can get your wow. head wrapped around that, you can recognize why counter-strikes should go to certain points on their arm when they punch or when they're trying to stab you with a knife or something like that because that point is the same contact point you would have touched them with with a katana or a spear blade or something that would disconnect the connected tissue uh, that keeps the wrist strong, right? So now that dies, and the next target at the shoulder is right there in front of you, so you don't have to do all these micro-adjustments. It's one, two, and then retracting or cutting it out, and as the guy falls, you can cut across his neck or whatever. So you can look at these techniques and these kata from the perspective of, holy crap, you know, I'm covering with the katana, which is still sheathed, or something in my front hand, like a pole arm that I had in katate uh, tenshijin, uh, uh, right? So single-handed heaven and earth. It's just So I'm just standing there like a guard. So I'm guarding with that, but I've drawn my short sword, and I'm doing a cut with that or whatever. So it, it suddenly takes on a whole new perspective and a whole new meaning. Uh, but, again, it's one of those things where folks, you know, if they don't understand history, they start making up crap. You know, uh, historically, what would happen? What Bullshit. You know, so if you don't understand history, you're going to translate this thing any way you want. But that doesn't make it right, right? just because that's logical to you based on how you think or your experience or education doesn't make it doesn't make it right. And ultimately, this comes full circle back to that first thing with distancing. It all comes full circle to the fact that you can train traditionally, because I had lots of people that tell me they want to approach self-defense from the traditional perspective. You can train traditionally and get really good at the traditional techniques, but if you can't apply those those techniques as is, against somebody who's going to be throwing a, a jab, right cross combination or an uppercut or a taekwondo kick or whatever, it always has to be from your quote-unquote style, then you're not training to be a survivor. You're training to be a museum curator, right? So and I'm not saying that you can't defend yourself. We've talked about this before. Any, I'm not saying that any more than I would say that a high school wrestler can't defend themselves, right? But it's not – the approach isn't – appropriate for that thing, right? It's not designed for that thing. So, anyway, we got ser- we got way too serious during this one. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is serious stuff. Well, it is serious stuff, but it's <laughs> no, sometimes. This is, this, uh, we could laugh at people that are doing it the dumb way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I need to find more videos. That's that's, that's okay. That's fair enough. Thing. Right, find fair more enough. videos of the dumb way, and we can laugh at more of it. I did, by the way, in in uh, the time of our talk with that that video we referenced earlier in this episode. Uh, it's been yeah, shared yeah. to the Kudin Facebook page, so you can go oh, there cool. to see that one and kind of review what we talked about. If you're listening in here, uh, kind of post the call. It's already up there, but um, yeah, interesting stuff, well, and always always looking for those real videos yeah. kind of break down and you know and I, and I see so many people approach online from like well I would have done this and I would have done that and uh, just I never come at it from that mindset I always come at it from the mindset of just like what happened how did this unfold and, and try as you explained very well in the beginning too like, well, what did the guy see from his angle because it's not the same as the camera angle and just breaking that down for your own training purposes and how you can work that in as opposed to, you know, picking apart, well, you, uh, I would have done this or I, I know this. <laughs> That's the stuff I right. probably laugh at the most. Well, here's the big thing, too, that I find laughable, and this includes myself as well, um, and that is when students, you know, assume a certain level of expertise on the matter, on the, on the side of a teacher, any teacher, including me, and then immediately and automatically 
take anything that teacher says as gospel. And while there's lots of folks that are highly skilled in the kata and the training and all that kind of stuff, right, there are some areas that are outside of their, not necessarily book knowledge, but outside of their experience. Case in point, and I'm not going to name names, but there is uh, somebody online that is just, they're really, really good, right? They've got their own dojo and all that stuff. So they share a lot of things. And uh, I just recently saw some videos of gun training, and they had gone to the range and tried out this this theory and everything, and it, it held, you know, sound and all that. And uh, while I would say that 80% of what they were teaching was right, there's a couple of really critical things that they were teaching that somehow bore, it, bore itself out in their training that uh, you don't do that, right? And I'm not going to list all those things because we're, we're running out of time here, but um, always, always question, right? If you see something, you see one of these videos or whatever, right, that's part of the format of what we're doing here, right? If you see something like this, you know, you could send it into us, you could post so we can review it and look at it for the next thing. Or if you've seen something that contradicts anything that I'm teaching or Eric's talking about or whatever, please speak up, right? Because one of the things that I am very proud of, and I don't mean egotistically proud of, is that I am surrounded and connected to a lot of guys that are in special ops, they're in law enforcement, they're in security, they're corrections officers, that kind of thing, right? These are the people that see violence on a regular basis and would be the first ones to call me on crap or stuff that wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't real. And the people that call me on what's crap are the ones that, you know, my friend was attacked by somebody with a knife and there was absolutely nothing he could do about it, right? So all this stuff is crap. Well, my question is, did your friend have any training before he got attacked? Well, it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, it does, right? The comments I get from special ops guys and, and uh, you know, the cops and all that stuff is, man, we want more. So, you know, you, you, it's been a couple of months since you put out a video. We, we need more stuff, right? If you cover it on this topic, that'd be awesome, okay? Because these are the guys that have to worry about survival, and they don't care what system the training came from. What they care about is that it's right and it works. And But the first thing they look at is, does it match attacks that are actually going to occur to me? They don't care what the defense looks like. I mean, it has to work. But they don't care whether we're doing a Sagan that might have come from 13th century Japan or we're doing something from Krav Maga or whatever. They don't care about that. What they care about is that you've matched that defense with an actual attack as it would unfold in their world, which is the world that I came from. So there's my there's my in, right? So – um, but call me on this stuff, as you should call any teacher on things. Never assume that because, you know, they impressed you when you were a white belt, that they're still going to impress you once you've gone through this process. Or, you know, because here's the thing, and I, I know I repeat this a lot, but it bears saying again for the new folks, and as a reminder for everybody else, when you embark on this journey, when you embark on this educational process, called learning self-defense, learning to survive, that kind of thing, right? You are literally and figuratively putting your life in the hands of the person you've chosen to teach you. They're not going to be there when you're the one that's being attacked, but you are putting your lives, your life in the hands of the person you've chosen until you can do it for yourself. So you're not just choosing somebody to teach you some stuff. You're contracting someone who's supposed to teach you how to survive real things. So the first question out of your mouth should be, have you ever used this for real? And if so, what was the context? Because they may not have documentation or whatever to back it up uh, or whatever, but, you know, and while lots of people have stories, stories can change over time. But either way, right, when have you used this? Okay, like, you know, I have to chuckle when somebody um, sees a video that I have on YouTube or something where I'm applying Mushadori or an Onikodaki or something like that, right? Or not an Onikodaki, but a, yeah, or an, uh, an outside wrist reversal or any of these things, right? And they scoff at it like that's impossible. And I have to chuckle because just with a Mushadori against a violent attacker, I can count on at least one hand 
how many times I was able to slip that on when somebody was trying to crack my skull open. For real. Not in a, hmm. not in a MMA thing, not in a, you know, a dojo sparring match or whatever, but when somebody was trying to clean my clocks. And so that's not, so I don't just teach Mushadori, I teach how this occurs and how and why awareness and tactile sense and all that is important and a familiarization with what it's supposed to feel like through the process so that you can recognize when it's already occurring and you can simply catch it and you can, you know, so you're not trying to chase down techniques and, and things like that. But again, it's the difference between just having knowledge about something, you can do the moves, you've earned the belt and all that, or just having street experience and actually that middle line on the mandala called enlightenment where you've traversed both realms and you've reconciled them. And so you can explain something, right, book knowledge, and you also have real-world experience in it. So um, I like to think that I have that just because of my background and experience. But uh, that doesn't preclude you from uh, or it doesn't remove your responsibility to take control of your own training and to make sure that you you check me on things, you know, saying that's been, not been my experience or – you know, so we can look at the contextual differences, and maybe there was something different about it. So, uh, you know, where would the change have occurred, right? Or, if you really do think that I'm blowing smoke up your butt, you need to speak up, right? Don't take anything that I or anybody else, regardless of rank or belt or affiliations or whatever, say to you about self-defense and survival, because this is ultimately your responsibility, right? In learning it, in using it, it's my responsibility to teach the stuff to the best of my ability um, and pass it on correctly. But it's your responsibility to be paying attention for crap, for paying attention to stuff that just doesn't seem to fit. You know, how do you get three shots in the same amount of time that it would have taken this guy to throw one punch? Because if he's throwing a full speed punch, you can't, you're lucky if you can get two half beat hits in, let alone three hits. And if you get three hits in, you are definitely giving up on power over flourish. And so, mm. great, you hit him three times, but you didn't debilitate him with those three things, and you're cooking off more energy than he is. And the rule of survival is energy conservation. So why the hell would you work three times harder than somebody else when you should be working less hard if you are the expert? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because that's not my neurosis. I mean, that's not, that's not how I think. Yeah, sorry. That's <laughs> not my delusion. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, well, uh, yeah, cool. yeah, we've touched on a number of, you know, really, really great topics here from distance to weapons and how all of that intermingles and plays together. And uh, so hopefully we've, we've certainly, uh, as I said, kind of just scratched the surface, piqued your interest for more, you know, uh, Mr. Miller's ebooks, things like that. You can go to warrior-concepts-online.com and you can get more info. Now, what's really cool is, uh, again, this was the first time we did this live where anybody could join in. They wanted to, you know, ask questions, interact, uh, they can. So we're going to keep that going, uh, Friday. Yeah. I think we're looking at Friday. This Friday. We're looking at Friday. Uh, about, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be sending out a note that, uh, lets you know the time and we'll look to kind of look at that day as a standard day to try to do this, uh, on, on a more repeat regular schedule so you can, uh, kind of bank on it being, being there for you to tune into, check out and ask your questions. So, uh, good way. And they're all recorded, so of don't that. think you're going to miss anything. Yeah. That's they're right, that's right. Except, you know, anything. you can't ask us your questions in real time, so. You know, right, can, right, absolutely. If you want to really make sure you get your question in there and interact, it's always great to be on there live if you can, uh, but you can get the recording. Uh, but but like the uh, Kuden Facebook page. There's a Facebook page for, for Kuden, and when you like the page, you'll start to see all those notes from us that let you know when the next episode will be will be coming out. So we'll keep you right. informed on how you get logged into the call and how you can ask your questions on the call and uh, on the show here and, and really become a part of it. And as I said, I put that video up there too on the Kuden page, uh, Kuden Podcast on Facebook. So you can just search cool. that out, Kuden Podcast on Facebook, and people can join in. 
Excellent. Excellent. I don't see anybody on at the moment, so, well, if, and if they are, they didn't submit any questions. So we're going to let it go at that. Hopefully we'll have uh, some more folks on. And to preempt the question, why aren't you doing this at a better time because it doesn't work for me, um, I literally have students all over the world, and we're going to be picking up more people from all over the world. There is no one best time for everybody. So what we had to do literally was pick something that fit into Eric's and I's schedule the best. So. We're hoping that a lunch schedule uh, West Coast and an end of work schedule uh, for East Coast. And, you know, you can jump on at any time, right? It's not like you have to be there right at the beginning. It's kind of like, you know, you have 24-hour radio stations in your area. You know, you're not signing on at the beginning, right? So you may check into the, into the, the middle of a, of a talk show kind of thing, right? The difference here is that we're already recording things for you, and you don't have to set up your TiVo. So here we are, right? So anyway, um, Eric, I thank you again. This is awesome. I think this is like episode 17. So uh, we're just going to keep moving, and we're going to – I'm researching this now to get this onto iTunes and Google Play and all that. So uh, we're going to really get this out for folks. But if you have topics, uh, as Eric was talking about with the podcast or the Kuden uh, Facebook page, or uh, we'll let everybody know about an email uh, address that you can contact us through, uh, you know, you can send in topics as well. So we can put those on the schedule and – and teach on those. And if you can make it in for camps, uh, there's there's several links that should be on the page, on your uh, your page that you're looking at now if you're online or on the replay page, uh, that uh, actually offer some of the courses and, like, the Shudikin book this time around and stuff like that. So if you're interested in any of the programs, you can look at that as well. All right. Eric, I'm going to let you Very wrap cool. it up. Well, and I, and I thank you. Yeah, I thank you for your time, sir. Uh, you know, I really, I really care less if anybody else tunes in because this is uh, <laughs> for me. So well, I selfishly exactly am happy I'm... to do the show anytime, anywhere. <laughs> That's why I used to host seminars and bring teachers into town, right? I'm, you know, I'd ask people what they wanted to learn. They just look at me with, and hear the crickets, right? So I would actually host these things to bring the teacher to me, and he's in town for more than just the seminar. So I got to train with the teacher after the seminar was over, before it even started, before I put him on the plane to leave. Oh, my God. You know, was it worth my time and effort? Yeah. Absolutely. So absolutely. So even if everybody else continues to just listen to the recording, um, here you are, and you're picking at least half the topics that we're discussing. So um, unless anybody else comes up with a topic, um, if nobody else, Eric's getting 100% of what he's looking for. So that's cool stuff. <laughs> that's right. All right, man. Very cool. Uh, well, thank I will talk you again. To you and, on, uh, we'll look, look to Friday. Talk on Friday. You bet. All right. That's it. Bye, everybody.